netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We enjoy digging deep into the technical side, advancing the craft of visual effects, and paying respect to the hardworking people creating amazing work. Be sure to check out all of our other podcasts at fxguide.com slash podcasts. Today we're going to speak with Wes Ball, the director of the Maze Runner series, and in particular, the second in the series, The Scorch Trials. We spoke to him in an FX podcast in late 2014 about the first film, and he was days away from heading off to shoot this film. I think you'll find this an interesting discussion about the visual effects, the challenges of shooting the film, as well as um, a good discussion about grading and sound and the importance of those two crafts. So let's jump in right now with our Mike Seymour speaking with director Wes Ball. So Wes, uh, congratulations on the film. It's uh, a cracker. I really enjoyed it. Ah, you saw it. Cool. Thanks, Yeah, Mike. you kind of opened up a bit though, right? <laughs> the maze was all about I couldn't see what was going on because if I could see what was going on, it wouldn't be a maze. That's right. But this guy, uh, really, you kind of opened out. Yeah, it was kind of cool. It was kind of a, the, the visual concept of it to me was exciting. You know, it's like, like you said, the first movie was all about mystery and intrigue and claustrophobia, you know, and I keep saying it and other press things and stuff, of course, but I love the idea that the second movie was kind of about they're out of the maze, but they're still lost. And the idea that they actually see a horizon line and this vast kind of world around them, and they still have no idea who they are, or how they fit into this world or where they're going kind of thing. So that was kind of that was kind of the, the, the thematic approach, I guess, you know, this time around. But it is a very different movie this time. It's, it's very much kind of a, a, a very fast-paced, on-the-run movie, essentially, you know. So, uh, Mr. Ball, there are directors that would tie themselves up in knots, and there are directors that would do a whole lot of things. But you, um, you didn't hang yourself out to dry, but you certainly hung yourself upside down for this film. Do you want to explain yeah. that? Yeah, so, yeah, that was basically talking about the hanging scene, right? Yep. Yeah, it was fun. It was, uh, I had But you idea. literally hung yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, it's like, you know, it was obviously part of the, the fun of the story is that these characters keep falling into just bad luck, you know what I mean? And they meet this one character, Jorge, who's kind of this pirate character, and, you know, our, our guys basically get captured, and you don't know whether he's friend or foe and all that stuff. So I love the idea that, you know, almost like Return of the Jedi or something, you know, that these guys get <laughs> captured and are, you know, how cool would it be that they're all hanging upside down, you know, over this gigantic pit, you know, and I told the crew this, you know, when we were prepping the movie and I told like, you know, the ADs and everybody and the stunt guys and there's like blank stares, you know, for a whole <laughs> scene, guys, for two whole scenes of the whole movie, they're going to be hanging upside down. They're like, no, this is not going to happen. And I said, I said, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. What am I going to do? Like put them in a, in a cage, you know, like a bird cage or something. That's, that's not fun. And so finally, and they said, fine, you have to tell the cast. So I remember bringing the cast in and saying, guys, this is going to be fun, but I got to ask you, are you all willing to be hanging upside down for two days straight? And, uh, and you know, of course, the, 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 the caveat was that I had to go do it first. So, yeah, I basically got strung up and, and hanging upside down. And I got to say, it's really tough because your blood rushes to your head immediately yeah. and you just start to basically, you know, lose yourself. You know, so, yeah, the, the cast... I mean, the good thing about the cast is that they're so game to try in this stuff, you know. But well, this uh, is the thing I was going to say, fun. like, like in you know, if you had a bad relationship with, the, maybe you'd end up with stunties, or yeah, you know, totally. Whether it come to your aid, but I understood it, that everybody pretty much just pitched in and did it. 
Yeah, for the most part. I mean, we, we did have a few people by the end sort of dropping, and I had to, you know, sure. luckily I shot them out so I could slip in the stunt guys where I, where, where I didn't need to needlessly have them hanging upside down. But yeah, everyone did it. You know, Dylan was pretty much the, the, the holdout. Dylan and, and, and Kaya, actually. Um, Kaya was all game and do, to doing that stuff too. So it was fun, man. It was, uh, and I think it's a, it's a unique little thing in the movie that I think stands out for the, for the cast if nothing else. So yeah, I think it was worth it. But shooting that, by the way, I gotta say shooting that was a nightmare. If you look at all the takes for those shots, it's basically 30 seconds of actual usable footage and about a minute and a half of just, they're laying down. Okay. Roll the cameras. We didn't want to waste any time whatsoever. You yeah, know? sure. And so the cameras are rolling, and then slowly we lift them up into place, and then okay, we're ready, all right, action, you know, and then okay, cut, and then bring it back down, you know, it's oh, it's a nightmare, <laughs> it's an absolute nightmare to shoot. Well, uh, it does look good on film, of course, and it's a, uh, it's one of those um, images in the film that's really graphic. The first shot of them hanging upside down. Yeah. Um, and I've got to say, before we get into the visual effects, there are some other just superb pieces of cinematography slash framing. The, my all-time favorite is the sand dune when the gun fires and they all just freeze. I mean, that is just beautiful. Yeah, people shot. on it. Just beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's like the, the typical thing I thought would be that, you know, you cut to their faces. Exactly. You know, maybe yeah. someone sheds a tear and then they look over their shoulder and keep going. I just love the idea that, you know, oh, it was really hard to shoot actually because the cast didn't want to do it, surprisingly. I was like, I want you guys to all stop at the same time. And they just, it, they just didn't want to do it, you know. So I shot a, a one day, I actually shot a couple takes of it. And they kept fighting it, and they kind of would stumble, and they keep walking. And, and I said, no, guys, it's not going to work. So we went back like another day or two ago, I mean, a day or two after, and I was just leaving that location. And I said, guys, I want you to do it this time. I had someone off on the, on the sidelines shoot a, shoot a real gun up in the air, and they all stopped. You know, it was that perfect little, you know, it was a nice little frame, basically. Um, but also, I got to say that, you know, Jula Pados, my DP on this, is, you know, it's fantastic. It's really, did a really good job. I mean, the lighting on that was was really nice, and that was actually yeah, really natural. June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no there's no CG in there except for basically. I think there's actually a little bit of paintwork in there where there was like a footprint or something on the dune. Because the the little secret here was that we basically had three sand dunes to yeah. shoot the entire <laughs> movie on. So I heard about that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a real it was a real something. But um, yeah, I'm glad you liked that shot. That's cool. So that June re- revisited uh, gets presumably kind of reworked. Um, and I was yeah. kind of fascinated by the fact you only had the three Junes. And also that you had to, of course, because of that reason, um, build out with visual effects. And I thought the the properties of the CG sand were so close. The, yeah. You must have been really pleased with that just quality of light that they were getting out of the out of the sand and, and the sort of subtlety of it. Because it sounds really easy, but it just isn't. Yeah, you know, sand is a really unique kind of, you know, has a very interesting property, you know, visual property, you know, characteristic to it. It's not just, you know, a matte color. It's, it's actually somewhat reflective. It almost has like a satin feel to it. You're right. It's, a, it's not an easy thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a, you know, they're, they're the best. They, they do a really great job. And, and that was kind of an approach we took throughout the movie, really, was to, you know, use real locations and then let Weta, you know, extend them. You know what I mean? And that, that works really well, actually. Well, I, I have a, a message from Weta for you. They, uh, they want you to come down so they can take you on a guided tour of all the tools and, uh, yes. and motion capture stuff. <clears throat> Away from the job, they want to just uh, let you spend a day playing with the tools because they said they just could tell so much enthusiasm you had for the actual tools of the craft. They oh, obviously so focused on the film. They just want you to come down and uh, hang out with them. I do. The I would love to. You know, it's like 
you're right. It's like it is fun. Like like, hey, what what kind of render do you guys use? And what kind of this? How did you approach this? What'd you do this? How the hell? What the hell? You know, it's like especially when you know just a little bit. Like I know enough to be dangerous. You know. And it's oh, like, I think you, you know more than a little bit, but but yeah. you know, still, it's like you know, like some of the like you know, my my big thing is like um like uh, wire removal guys. I have so much respect for that oh, kind of yeah. that paint and roto crew. It's like it's like that that gets that doesn't get you know enough. It, that's hard work. That's like impossible work. And I kept asking, how the hell did you guys do this stuff? And you know, they just kind of smile, and I think they appreciate at least that I recognize the hard work, you know. But yeah, like well, this is like the, well, this was the first movie where I really got to do a lot of motion capture stuff, and I just love it. Obviously, they're the best in the world at that stuff. So, um, but yeah, they they have some cool toys. Before we get onto the motion capture, I actually went and visited the uh, Roto guys in whatever is the record plant or the I think it's the paint shop anyway oh, the right. factory that they have in, in part of uh, Wellington where those guys are and, and and literally it was a case of like I had permission to be there but they were like what are you doing here like no one's allowed back here like, <laughs> <laughs> no one ever visits us but I totally agree with you I think that they're really unsung heroes and yeah. now I understand that you got to use them very uh, specifically for the sequence where uh, the, they, they're in the building and they're against the glass yeah. and you've got an actor obviously providing the physicality of uh-huh. grabbing on to Brenda's leg, but you just you then change that, right? So you needed that team to come in and just basically remove the gray guy and put a Yeah. No on that, but in. all the rest of that sequence is, you know, those that's a real set. So and that, we actually built that thing, you know, it's pretty damn dangerous. They're forty feet up in the air. So they had to have a wire on them just in case because they were really there was no it was it was of course there was a, a, a blue screen on the bottom to kinda of extend it further, but if they were to fall, they would die, you know. So the actors are really doing that. So there's just all this, all this, uh, you know, cables passing over each other. And I try to be smart, but sometimes you just have to use it. Um, but yeah, yeah, then there's the the added thing of you know having my stunt guys in their gray leotards, you know, and and Weta having to go in and and repaint all that stuff and then insert this full CG cranks. It's uh, yeah, like you said, unsung heroes, man. And so then you mentioned the uh, the motion capture guys, and uh, mm-hmm. again, obviously your actors were incredibly keen to and did do everything they possibly could. But there are moments where you need to, and uh, you know, swap them out. And I think sure. one of the ones that I found amusing was the idea of those guys at uh, Weta in the motion capture setting up a flying fox and having guys in motion capture suits <laughs> flying foxing across the uh, yeah. the uh, motion capture stage. Yeah, that was fun, man. Oh man, it was really fun. I mean, it's, what's just kind of cool is that there's a couple shots in this movie where. It's a perfect example where we just use, you know, visual effects to help us add scope and scale that we couldn't otherwise achieve without a lot of work and time, you know, on stage. Because we don't, we didn't do any second unit, so I had to shoot everything. Um, so there's like, there's one little shot you probably didn't even notice. Maybe you did. You probably would notice um, where it's, um, let's say that they're they're in a in a canyon, and someone whistles, and a couple guys, you know, pop out of the of the top of the cliffs yep. with guns. There's no way I could get guys up there, basically. And so Weta just basically made digi doubles and put them in there, and I think it totally works. You know, it's like we have a ton of that stuff in, throughout the whole movie, um, where it's like I would have never thought to to uh, try to do that before, but Weta makes it look easy, man. <laughs> and it's anything but, of course. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's an entire pipeline solution, isn't it? Which is actually one of the nice things that you had going for you here is yeah. that. Um, is that through Richard uh, as your production supervisor, you actually had an entire team under Chris at Weta that was effectively one company, one film, which we yeah. don't get that often these days. No, definitely not. It was, it was Weta, 
a one-man show, the entire shot. I think we had 591 shots this time, which is actually less than the first movie, but they're just all, you know, 10 times bigger shots, you know? Um, yeah, it's good. It's a good way to do it, you know? Oh, yeah. I think it is good, and, and it allows you to get a good collaborative thing running. And everyone was very enthusiastic when I've been speaking to them about that collaboration. They felt like you were open to um, ideas, which is, you know, obviously great to hear. Oh, yeah. Collaboration is everything, you know, especially those guys, they have, you know, great solutions, great ideas. And, you know, just like on shooting a movie, you're, you're, it's not me making the movie, it's us, you know what I mean? So, um, and they're obviously, you know, extremely talented at what they do. So <laughs> why not, you know, listen to what they have to say. It's interesting because obviously you've got a strong visual effects background. Um, mm -hmm. But the thing that uh, Richard spoke to me about, which he thought was interesting, is like he went in knowing that you'd had that background, but he wasn't... Uh, prepared for how much what he described as production design experience you had now you mm. you did a lot of kind of slap i'm going to call, call them slap comps or photoshop yeah. kind of mock-ups yeah Do you want to talk about that yeah basically it's a lot through the the scorch section of the movie which is i knew it when i was shooting it was going to be the toughest section of the movie um but uh but it was basically that world stuff you know it's like creating those like kind of that shot you were talking about when they all stop on the sand dunes and stuff like that it's like um trying to come up with a vista and a kind of, um, you know, a unique look that wasn't, we weren't trying to show off too much rather than just kind of present this kind of unique kind of ruined world being swallowed by sand dunes and, and just, just kind of present it as like a landscape in a way, you know? So it was really difficult trying to, you know, we, we could create anything because we were just shooting these guys on sand dunes. So it's like we had to kind of come up with really early on some kind of a guide for Weta so they could get started on work. So yeah, I would just kind of, you know, rip stuff apart and, you know, either stills or I'd build something in CG and just really quickly, you know, bash it together. Um, and, and it helps, you know, I think it helps to, you know, I try to carry the ball down the field as far as I can so that, you know, what a, so, you know, you, you take out all that kind of back and forth lack of efficiency stuff. You know what I mean? People know what they're trying to do and it's just about now achieving it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's talk about the environments for a second, because one of the things that I thought was kind of really interesting is, uh, you know, you might say to somebody, oh, well, there was this, um, let's say I walked out of the film and I was talking to my wife or something, so there's, you know, destroyed city. Yeah. And the thing is, that sounds like, well, there's a destroyed city. We've, we know what that looks like, even though we've never seen one, because it's not as if science fiction hasn't gone there before at some right. time. But you had an interesting twist because yours wasn't a war-desolated Terminator yeah. city. It wasn't a fire-destroyed but nor was it Planet of the Apes overgrown greenery. You had like yeah. a whole different sort of, well, I guess coming yeah. from the title of the film, of course. But It was, it was like a ghost it? town. Yeah, it was a ghost yeah. town is how I kind of pictured it, you know. And I love the idea that, you know, I did all this research about sand dunes and how, you know, they're, they're, they're very mobile things, these sand dunes. They actually crawl, you know, many feet every year out in the desert. You know, it's just the way the sand and the wind pushes these sand dunes. So I love the idea that the sand dunes were, you know, as the world basically through the what you learn in the in the books and stuff that what James uh, the author described was you know the solar flares um, kind of you know ravaged the world and kind of you know um, a lot of fires broke out and those kinds of things and I love the idea that all the topsoil is gone so all that's left is just the sand and now it's been building up over over the over you know the decades and starting to kind of just swallow these cities and so what we got to kind of design here was this, a city that was you know ravaged by the elements, not by sort of war, you know what I mean? And it was kind of fun to kind of, you know, they're sun bleached, you know, and they're, they're falling apart and, and they're dusty, 
And, and I think a, a really unique touch that we added was lots and lots of like trash and particulate stuff that kind of catches on all this stuff and like, like tumbleweed basically, you know, blowing through these ghost towns. But in our, in our version, it's a, you know, modern city essentially. So it added all this really kind of nice little life to the shots, you know, when you had this kind of blowing sand and, and trash. Yeah, the flapping, the flapping plastic in the buildings is such yeah. a good way to give scale versus just flocks of birds, which wouldn't yeah, have worked in this say, film. It's equivalent of flocks of birds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you couldn't do that, right? You couldn't have vegetation. You couldn't have the flocks of birds. You've got to get yeah. scale and get some life into these things. And that, that also rings true. I don't know from where I am tapping that, but it just feels like that idea that things get caught and, and flap yeah. and stuff. Yeah, you see it you see it all the time, especially like, you know, um, one of those sections, how we achieved one of those ruined city things is that we ha- I had this idea that um, all, all around Albuquerque, which is where we shot, there are these rubble yards where they'll, you know, they'll just grab all this broken concrete from buildings they're destroying or whatever it is, and they'll just throw it down in this, these gigantic kind of lots, and there's these piles of just rubble, essentially. And I was like, that's perfect. We can just go there, shoot, just take over the plant for a day or two. We can just shoot that, put some green screen up in places, and then Weta will just kind of add all the buildings and all the kind of stuff. But what we've got in the frame, what the actors are actually standing around is real concrete, you know, real stuff that... Would, we would never be able to build or afford on our on our level of a of a budget to actually achieve. So it was a it, it, it provided a really cool I think look to the to the what what I was able to kind of you know match to essentially you know. But that worked really well. And 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 you find it in those rubble yards. There's all this trash and just junk that just kind of collects and and gets caught on the rebar and it's just blowing around in the wind. So it, it was a it was cool. It was a good little touch I think that they put into everything. Yeah. And they, but by the just, way, they had some really cool procedural tools for doing that too. It was really neat. They would build everything, and they would have these. They were they were showing me how they how they do it. They have this this basically simmed uh, a cloth pass and a kind of debris pass where they would make these socks around the building and then run their sims, and it would catch in all these different unique places. And then you know it, it would feel very real. You know, I, I hate to say it, but I would look at a lot of um you know nine eleven stuff. You know, in Twin Towers. And just seeing like the the complexity of that wreckage, you know, it was something we were trying to somewhat achieve. But you know, like I said, it was it was kind of terrible looking at that stuff. But um, that was sort of where we started looking, you know. Yeah, I actually think the process that Weta deployed here is fascinating because, from I understand it, to talking with them, you know, they didn't just sort of model some stuff and then you know art direct plonk a building there, plonk a building here, and and it was sort of um, like a Lego set. In fact, they had some undestructed buildings which they destroyed so that the, your debris was hanging correctly and so that a rigid body sim had actually derived that pattern fall. Yeah. And then effectively you're picking it up after the sim. And I love the idea that they sort of built a city and then destroyed it for yeah. you rather than just saying, oh, I'll just, you know, paint some debris here kind of thing. You're right, um, yeah. It was all full CG, full real. It, it catches the sun right and everything. It's just, that's, that's, there's some really great full CG, really complex, really dense shots in the movie and, yeah, they did a really cool job on it. Added, added yeah. really basically a, a level of scale to the movie that is way beyond our budget, you know, which is what's cool about it, you know? It is, the, it is from a you know, classic filmmaking point of view, the marvelous thing that you want is the big establishing wide shot because we, we care as an audience about what's going on in the faces of the actors, which you don't get where you see a giant you know, bridge and collapsing in the yeah. background. So we don't want just the bridge collapsing because we want to see the actors. But having said that, it feels less of a film, less 
epic if you don't have a couple of big shots to kind of yeah, place and, and also just kind of there's one particular shot where it's like you know they've just revealed like the world they've they've kind of walked into they we kind of withhold the, the world for quite a bit of the movie actually and it's, it's not night, yeah yeah exactly we pretty, we pretty much through the whole movie basically you don't know quite where you are um you have an idea because of the trailers of course but there's this one shot where it's just this lonely little camera uh, kind of on a helicopter just drifting over a building and down at the bottom it just finds these little tiny figures moving in this big wide world and it kind of tells you everything you need to know you know it, it tells you in that shot what 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 the world is and, and how these people fit into it you know it's it's, it's cool I also found another environment a similar uh, location really uh, nice when you first get them coming up from the uh, I'm going to call it the sewers where the rat sequence is and uh, yeah, sure. they're there's just the two of them, and you've got to go like a valley, but the valley is actually the dead city, and yeah. um, it's before they hit the nightclub, and that was, again, just a really beautiful kind of environment. Yeah, it was fun. It was like, we always kind of looked at it as, um, you know, erosion again. You know, it was like, that was probably, we kind of we kind of based it on Chicago. We Actually, I think we, we called our city Van, Van Cago. <laughs> we kind of, <laughs> a little bit, little bit Vancouver, a little bit Chicago. I, I like the idea of not saying it's a particular city. I like the idea of staying kind of neutral, essentially. And it is somewhat of a fantasy world. And I think as soon as you see, you know, um, the, the San Francisco Bridge or, you know, the Statue of Liberty, I, I don't know, I, I disconnect a little bit somehow. Um, you want Charlton Heston on his knees, otherwise. Yeah, exactly right. So, um, yeah, it's um, I forgot where we we're going with that. What was I saying? Oh, you're saying like this that valley. It had oh, a yeah. feeling like so a what, valley. So what I kind of interpreted it as is it was probably it was probably a river at one point, and then as everything kind of got just eroded away, when it occasionally did rain or whatever it was, it would just kind of erode away this channel right through the city where there once was a road. And, and I love how they could just, you know, certain buildings would just fall apart and you would see kind of the face of the other building on the other side and kind of the, the, the under levels of like the, the, the garage and everything that you kind of see exposed through that. I thought it was kind of a cool look and it just gave us that kind of, you know, set piece that we needed of being really high up and that building that kind of had fallen over across that, that bridge essentially. Um, yeah, it was cool. It was, and again, that's a full CG world, you know, it's like we built a little piece of a set, but, that's really Weta, you know, doing their doing their thing. If we go back earlier in the film, um, the thing that struck me is that you had really strong color palettes. Like it's a very blue color palette when they're in the lab. Yeah, I mean, sure. Incredibly blue, but you've got these virtually completely uh, brown um, kind of cream yeah. color palette with a scorch. I mean, and again, changes again in the mountains. I mean, how much did you find that? How much did you know about that before you even started? Yeah, I think we started that way. You know, we, we definitely kind of wanted it to be pretty striking. You know, I think you're talking about the blue is when the hanging bodies and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just, it was it was that kind of, um, you know, if you've ever gone into, I remember the, the where it kind of came from, that really distinct blue thing. My dad was a pharmacist, and uh, he used to have these, um, where he would mix some of the drugs and stuff, this little booth, essentially, that was just UV light, you know, and, and it was in, everything inside that box was just super blue, I mean, purple blue, you know? And I love the idea that this was this place was basically a clean room, you know, and, and, and just that kind of, you know, there's that the moment where we come into that space, we've been, you know, kind of cooler, I guess, on the color palette of things when they're in the kind of bunker and everything. But I love the idea that once they crossed into that world, they crossed that threshold that we just stepped into something that was striking, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that was basically planned, and it was, even the dailies, it looks pretty close to that. Of course, you know, um, 
The problem with that blue, though, is that, you know, P3, which is what we grade the movie in for theaters, you can't replicate that in 709. So we have to kind of make some allowances when we get to the DVD side of things. But, you know, that's always a little disappointing, I guess. But uh, That's really interesting, actually, that you, you're actually exploring the, the color space uh, in an area that is different between what you can get in Rec. 709 and what you can get in the... Because obviously at yeah, Aces, you can definitely. get anything. Yeah. Um, but at the yeah, cinema totally. level, you can get more than you can on DVD. Yeah, which is also something kind of cool. I think we were the first Fox movie to do everything at OpenEXR. We're, usually everyone does it DPX, you know what I mean? So that yeah. was really nice to just be linear like that and everything. And uh, I know eFilm, who did our grading, had to kind of you know rethink some of their pipeline to, to accomplish that. But um, who, who did your grade? Uh, Mitch um, okay. at eFilm. Um, yeah, he did a great job. And uh, um, um, it was, it's very cool. And what's really cool is I don't even know if it's been announced yet. But uh, we just did a grade for Dolby Vision, the laser projection that Dolby has. Oh, really? Yep. It's astonishing. It's so good. Have you ever seen laser projection? Yeah, and you know the thing about it that I'm struck by is I yeah, just think it's so it much more. Yeah, yeah, but I have, I've, and I've seen, and I think it's the richness of it is so much more Im- impactful than going to 4K or 8K, right? Like, I mean, I like high res, but I find yeah. the richness of this stuff is is more impactful than just bigger res. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, I, I would rather, I'd rather not have 4K, to be honest, because most of the time 4K projection looks incredibly milky and yeah. really uncontrasty. Uncon- un- and it's like having contrast is what gives you the perceived resolution. You know what I mean? But yep. my biggest thing is, my, I hate in digital projection is our blacks are gray. They're not, they're yep. not black. You know what I mean? Yep. Especially in this movie where we do a lot of, we go down into pure black. It it's, it's makes a huge difference. So we're actually, I think, the sixth movie now to actually be graded in that way now. So I think the first Fox movie too. So if anyone out there has a chance to go see this in Dolby Vision, do it because it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. It's the only way I ever want to do movies, to be honest. Have you also watched it on the Dolby Vision monitors? The um, yeah, I, I I know about them, but I have not seen them. No, but I have. Same thing applies. It's you think it's not going to make that much difference? Yeah, I've done, I did the HDR um, pass on the Maze Runner. So you know the right. Samsung TVs that have the HDR thing, which is not quite yep. what the Dolby Vision monitors are, but it's you know close. It's it's fantastic. I mean, I'm a big fan, and it doesn't have to be gimmicky. You know what I mean? It nice. can just be good blacks and awesome whites, and it's a. Uh, it's a very, it's a nice format. You know what I mean? I'm a really big fan of it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, you also did some really interesting things with sound while we're on these other areas. Um, there were times that I couldn't tell if I was listening to the soundtrack as in some kind of orchestral uh, scoring or this was uh, some monster about to hit. And I was, uh-huh. I watched it in uh, Dolby Atmos. Oh, cool. And so Good. I was like, you are totally screwing with me with the sound. Yeah, we had some fun times. I mean, um, I think sound's like super important, you know, I mean, it's, you know, people always say that, but I mean, it is. Re- I like to use sound as a storytelling aspect, not just kind of a fill in the blank spaces. You know, I like like that moment when they're in the in the. Um, I kind of ripped myself off a little bit from my short ruin, but when they're they're you know they're in the they're walking through the the ruined kind of um, you know uh, city, and then you hear something on in the wind, some kind of rumble or something, and you kind of invite the 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 audience to kind of participate in that experience of leaning in yep. and listening. You know what I mean? It's it's fun to use sound as a way to kind of experience things, experience these stories. You know. What was also nice at that point is that as the audience, we didn't know what we were listening for. I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if, like, I was like, what what are we listening for? <laughs> and 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 yeah, so that I made Ling, me want to listen. Sound designer. Yeah, I Ling my as my sound designer, I Ling Lee, and uh, yeah, we we you kind of if you really kind of listen to it. 
she did this great thing where you almost feel like you're hearing wind at first and then it kind of yeah. wait what no it's something else and then out of that comes this little propellery sound and then it just grows kind of exponentially so it's like crap everyone hide you know what i mean it's it was fun it's fun to do that kind of stuff sound wise and you know being in dolby atmos is fantastic and of course my mixers doug and ron are you know they're, they're like some of the best in the world you know they do all of really scott stuff and they do you know some really they've done a lot of great work and you know they did my they did my last movie too and yeah it's uh it's dolby atmos is a fun one to use another tool by the way that can totally be abused and and, and hurt you you know if you don't do it right um, it can be just as gimmicky as bad 3D, you know, using Atmos. But um, but done right, it can be really immersive, you know. I like the Atmos at the end sequence uh, uh, for the fight because it was a bit darker at that time of day and there was a lot of stuff going on and it just did, I think, sort of immerse you a bit more. And also there's a risk with a scene like that. Had you done it in a studio or had you sort of – it would have seemed small – but having shot at exterior and doing a good soundscape, it really didn't feel small. Right. Sorry, I, I might have lost you for a second, Mike. But um, oh, I'm sorry. But uh, you're talking can about you basically me? the end, basically, right? Yeah, I'll just give you the question again. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, cool. Um, you're talking about the end and how the sound was, right? I was just saying, yeah, at the end, it was really immersive. I thought, um, and it felt yeah, big. especially it what we did small. with music and sound, and that was honestly that was one of the biggest challenges in the movie sonically was wrestling the big giant score with the big giant sound it's like you know it's not easy it's really difficult thing to do and um you know we did the best we could but but yeah that's a perfect example there where we kind of chose to lean a little bit more on music and let the sound effects kind of you know play the backseat essentially sometimes you know to kind of hopefully feel the more of the emotion of it and stuff you know but um yeah i gotta say you know this time making this movie was um it was a rush you know i mean we basically turn this movie around and I mean, I think we started shooting in October and then we finished in August. So whatever that is like 11 months or something, it was not like the first movie. Basically we were racing basically to finish. So it was one of those cases where, you know, we're mixing and cutting at the exact same time and just barely getting it finished in time to send it out to the, you know, the international world, you know, that, that comes out. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting experience this time. So in the first film you had bugs, giant bugs, and in this film you have yeah, yeah, what, robot spiders. Yeah. Okay. But in this film we have they're not zombies, but they're pretty uh, gnarly, um, infected, uh, zombie-esque type <laughs> yeah. cries. Um, yeah. And unfortunately for me, Weta actually showed me reference of the subcutaneous uh, th- uh, thorn horn. Yeah, sorry, right, stuff that right. they reference the real medical yeah. stuff. Which, by the way, I will not be able to have lunch now. Yeah, it's disgusting. Um, what was how far do you go with that before it becomes horror like genre was <laughs> well the truth is i mean you know part of this is the books right i mean you know I, i'm not making a movie here i'm kind of adapting a series of books so um james did basically craft a little bit of a horror thing in his books and that's kind of what the the book fans were really looking forward to and and we kind of embraced so we do actually go into a little bit of horror and and it was uh it was quite a challenge with the mpaa getting our rating right and stuff. Um, but, yeah, we decided to go for it, you know, and, and try to be something a little scary. I don't think it's um, it's not um, gratuitous necessarily. There's not like, like all the blood and guts or anything, but um, they are pretty scary, you know, um, these kind of infected creatures essentially. They're basically humans that, you know, get this, this, this virus. And I love the idea of the physical kind of aspect of the virus that, you know, 
kind of worms its way out of your skin and slowly kind of envelops you. And the idea of the, of the virus, the monster, kind of consuming the human inside, that was kind of a cool idea. So, yeah, we started researching all these different things of the natural, um, this, 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 this strange kind of you know, illness that happens where you start growing these kind of, you know, almost like, uh, pro- yeah, almost like calcium-based, you know, growth yeah. out of your skin. It's just disgusting. And so we kind of, you know, just ran it with really it. It really is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it really it is. is upsetting. And you know, I have to say, you know, that was, you know, there is a version of those cranks because there is a section in the movie. We only have like basically three scenes of the cranks in the movie, so there's that's where we dip into a little bit of horror. Other than that, it's pretty much just a straight, straightforward adventure. But um, there's one scene where our characters kind of run into these cranks in a really dark tunnel, and they're all all the cranks are basically full CG, um, all done by Weta. Um, but there there was a version of those cranks that were, I don't want to say so good, because I think what, they, what we have in the movie is good too, but they were, they were awesome, but they were R-rated. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I had to basically go back, and after we got our rating, trim back a little bit on the reality of them a bit so that we could push into PG-13, which is obviously a very important thing for us um, and our kind of demographic. But, um, you know, it's, I'm a little sad because, you know, Weta did some fantastic work there and the artists, that, what they did. But, you know, it'll probably never see the light of day aside from what I showed at Comic-Con basically this year. So, so there's, some, there's obviously a great important plot point about somebody pulling their own eyes out. But earlier in the film, there is a, a crank that actually seems to have ripped their own eyes out. And that was a pretty horrific uh, image. And that stuck with me at least. <laughs> really? Okay, cool. All right. I don't think I watched most of it. It's probably because it was a little girl. Yeah, I kind of looked away, I think. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's a. Uh, it was. Yeah, it's a little intense. This movie, for sure. But the earlier ones are makeup, right? Yeah, that's so all you're... basically prosthetics. Yeah, there's no no CG in there. H- who did you make up? So it was interesting that it was this little stunt woman. It was fantastic. She basically does all the work around town uh, for kids because she's like four foot tall. And I swear, you think she's a little girl walking around. I remember my Dylan, you know, he uh, saw her walking around. I was like, oh, hi, sweetie. Are you okay? Are you lost? And she's like, leave me alone, kid. You know, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, you know, she's actually, you know, fairly old. She just looks really young. So that's what we used, basically. We put a bunch of makeup on her and got, had her, you know, do her thing in the scene. But it was pretty bizarre watching her kind of walk around and drink tea and, you know, carry on as a normal person with all this kind of crazy makeup on, you know, this little four-foot, you know, stunt woman, you know. Who was doing the visual effects, sorry, special effects makeup design work? Like, who was heading up that uh, makeup stuff? Oh, so, yeah, so that was ADI. Yeah, that was ADI, um, um, those guys there. Um, uh, Tom Woodward and, uh, and uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now. It's Michael? terrible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they did a great job. You know, they, they came in and, you know, it was, it was nice to... Uh, you know, we didn't want to do too much of the full CG stuff because we want our actors, especially that big giant group of actors, make sure all their eyelines were right. We wanted to have to make sure they're actually looking at the same thing. So we basically, you know, just dressed up and put a bunch of prosthetics on, you know, regular old human beings, regular stunt people, and then played out the scene. And plus, it was nice because we could show a progression of the virus essentially. So the first cranks we meet aren't quite as far gone as the ones that you meet deep down in this dark, you know, tunnel that haven't seen the light of day for a year or two and the virus has completely kind of transformed them into these monstrous, hideous things. So it was cool. It was a good little handoff, I think. 
Yeah, Amalgamated Dynamics or ADI has yeah. been in the business for like 25 years, right? I mean, yeah, they, they do, do like, alien like, stuff. Yeah, I mean, basically like Tom's stuff and, and those guys, they, they work really closely with, um, you know, like they, they learn to understand Winston, you know what I mean? So they learn from the best yeah. people in the, in the world. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really a thrill to kind of have them come on board and, and do some of the work for us. It was cool. You hadn't worked with them before they weren't no, on the No, I hadn't. No. Yeah, I basically just wanted them because I've always kind of been fans of their work. And so I just I just reached out to them when we you know we needed to do that side of this stuff for the movie. So one of the things that uh, I kind of interested to, to ask you about is having done this now sort of I, obviously it feels and is bigger um, canvas. Uh, is there any lessons that you learned from this you taking forward into your next sort of project? I mean, not so much that you would do differently because it was bad, but oh, just, I do you plenty. Know. Of, I do plenty differently. I'm definitely one of those guys that always looks at the negative for sure. <laughs> I, I'm more critical of myself than, than anybody. Um, yeah, I think the, you know, coming off of the first one, you know, I, I, I had maybe a tiny bit of, okay, I got this, I can do this, no big deal. Um, by the way, just so I can say it, it's Alec Gillis was the other guy, um, the, the partner okay. to Tom Woodruff, just so I get that right. Um, but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a different animal this time. And what's really interesting about it is it's blocking and staging. Um, I've still got a lot to learn there because in the first movie, you know, I had a lot of these two-person intimate scenes. I had a lot of, you know, the character of Thomas with Minho. And I got a scene with Thomas and Newt. And I got a scene with Thomas and, and Albie. Um, so I got really good at doing these little two-person scenes and coming up with ways to kind of shoot that. Um, I think last time we talked about, you know, you know, you know, doing these long takes and stuff like that and trying to learn how to do that stuff. Um, but this time I had seven, eight people that I have to carry through all of the scenes. And how do you, how the hell do you keep that interesting? How do you keep people not sitting back there just kind of twiddling their thumbs the whole time? That's really, really, really difficult. Um, and, you know, what, what unfortunately happens is that you end up having to go into the, the dirty word coverage, you know what I mean? Where you're just doing the close-up, 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 medium, medium, wide shot kind of thing. And I hate, I can't stand doing that kind of work. Um, but sometimes you have to resort to it. But, um, you know, I think it's, um, you know, ca- character and story always has to be, you know, at the forefront, you know. And, you know, I'll always make sure that, you know, um, I'm always looking at that first and making sure that all the characters are, are interesting and doing something interesting and have a need, a, a reason to be there in the scene and offer something into the scene. So that's still something I think myself I have to continue to, you know, get better you, at. You, you previs this one with Third Floor. Mm-hmm. Did you previs the first one with Third Floor? I don't think you did. Yeah, yeah, I did. Oh, you did? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it was great. That- you know, they did the Leaning Building, for instance, you know, that, that sequence. They did a really great job of that. And, you know, it's a, it's a good tool, right? It's just a good tool to get all the department heads on board, even if we throw it out <laughs> while we're shooting. Yeah, and so you shot this on the Ari Alexa, and you, uh, I saw it in uh, 235. I think you mastered in uh, like a 16 by 9 format. Um, no, but, I, I, well, yeah, I guess, well, I don't know. The, the movie's supposed to be seen in 235 for sure. That's, that's, that's how I definitely, saw it, yeah. yeah. it's definitely how it should be. Um, but I think, yeah, it's mastered in like 69, just, just, I think that's just a Fox kind of standard. But hopefully no one will ever see it that way because it's definitely not intended to be. Um, but what's interesting about this time around is that we shot on the, um, we were kind of the first, I think, Fox movie to use the open gate Alexa. So what it meant is that we were actually shooting 3414 basically 4-3 um, aspect ratio, and then, you know, pulling our, our, our kind of extraction 2880 16 by 9 frame, which had the letterbox on it, um, that brought down a 235. So what that meant in the DI and sometimes in visual effects, if I asked for it, is I had 
like 10 to 15% left and right to either zoom out, to move over, to pan over, to stabilize, do whatever I wanted to really have a lot of control over the final framing. It was so addictive <laughs> to be able to have that power, you know, because you know when you're on set, you know, you're shooting fast and like don't quite get that framing just perfect, you know what I mean? It's, it's a really valuable thing to, to, to have. Well, I'm sure the tracking guys at Weta yeah. tracking would uh, really have appreciated having that extra. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, we ended up basically at first we were just going to give them 2880 the, the extraction basically, and then we started saying, wait a minute, this makes no sense. Let's just go ahead and give you the full frame. You don't have to do the work on all those frames uh, unless I asked for it. Of course, it was a, a different process for if I wanted the extra room to like, yeah. wow, this is a big shot. Let's use the entire frame. Um, but yeah, I know it, they started getting the the footage constantly that way. All the all the master plates and and I know that I know it came in handy several times. So was it the the schedule that kept you based in LA and working with Weta kind of more remotely with constant CineSync sessions? I mean, I was kind of surprised you didn't camp out down in, in oh, New Zealand. Man, I would have loved to. I mean, are you kidding me? I would love to have gone to New Zealand. But yeah, it was definitely the schedule. I mean, like I said, we had to turn this movie. I was when the movie came out. I think we talked actually when I was in Albuquerque yep. getting ready to shoot actually last time. So when the movie came out on September 18th of the of last year, I was four weeks away from shooting the sequel. Um, so I was already in you know in in, in uh, Albuquerque prepping this thing, and like and I said, and having to do press, yeah, and having to do press, yeah, it was not easy. That's for sure. This time was a, it was a real race. It was a real rush um, to turn this movie around and. You know, and and all the to the last minute, man. It was, like I said, it was a different experience this time. It was a very. I imagine I got spoiled on the first experience because what happened on the first movie is that we were supposed to release in February. Um, it was supposed to be a pretty quick turnaround, and and what happened is I showed the studio my first cut, and they said, "Oh, wow, this is actually better than we thought. Let's push the release date to a better time and give you more time to keep going." And so I ended up getting like all this extra time to finish the movie. So I'm like twiddling my thumbs pretty much for, for, you know, at the very end there. I did all the color work I wanted, all the sound work I wanted. And this time, you know, we were cutting, you know, the same week we're filing the mix, which is not ideal at all. Um, but, you know, you, you, those are the cards that we were dealt. So we had to deal with it. And, and as much as I would have loved to go down to New Zealand, you know, it's just a, the nature of I had to be around for color grading. I had to be around for sound you know, the sound mix and the sound design and it had to be around for all that stuff. But, you know, it worked really well having, you know, Richard here with me, um, talking to Weta constantly. Um, and then, you know, Chris and, and Weta and doing the, the Senate syncs, you know, every other day, it was fine. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. It would have been great to have FaceTime with the artists, of course, you know, I'm such a big fan of their work, but, um, it wasn't, uh, it didn't really present too many challenges, you know? Yeah, it does. It is interesting, isn't it, that you talk about the success of the first film, and obviously, we, you know, I obviously was one of many people that thought it was terrific. But it's it sort of lays a, a pattern. I don't know how deliberate it is, where you know you've got these effectively young adult novel series, mm -hmm. and instead of the sequel being like in your case, this sequel is absolutely part of the same story, but it's a completely different thing. It's not like let's yeah. tell the same jokes again and, yeah. and milk right. it. They're not. They're not. Oh no, we're in another maze. You and know? that's going to probably hurt us, by the way, in, in some cases to people. You know, I. You know, we we specifically the thing that most interested me, the reason I wanted to do do a sequel, which at first I didn't, was that we didn't have to rehash what we'd done in the first one. You know, we got to kind of explore a completely new world, a new color palette, a new visual language but still follow and keep the trajectory of the, the, these characters in the story 
to me, that was was, was exciting. And I do think that's probably going to hit us for some people that maybe aren't aware of that from the books, that it kind of does that too. Um, they well, might be expecting another for, maze. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if and not to draw direct parallels, but obviously the, the obvious parallel is Hunger Games, sure. which ends up in a completely different dark place in the books from where the first one kind of started and, sure. and thus the films are too. I don't think, I, you know, I think it's kind of working in your favor actually because it's, uh, it's not fatiguing the, the format and, uh, you know, it is an ensemble cast and you need to give them interesting things to do or it just feels like we've been there before. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like I said, like the movie, even this mechanically, like the movie's very different. The engine that's driving it is so different. So it's almost a different genre of a movie. And, and we'll, we'll do that on the third one too. You know, it's going to be a very different kind of movie again. And so it's kind of fun. I'm, each time I'm not really, it's almost not really a sequel. It's like a, a reimagining or something, you know, but still, you know, tracking the same story and characters. It's, it's kind of fun in a way, you know? So I, I, I love the idea of is that when the three movies are done, to be able to hold up the posters or whatever of each and seeing how kind of distinctly different they are from each other, you know, I think it's going to be really fun, you know. Do you, do you have a date on the death cure? Is there a, a target? Yeah, right. Yeah, right now it's uh, it's February 2017. So we'll probably start shooting it in February. So we're working on the script now. And uh, that's kind of the goal right now. So it's, you know, a year and a, and a month or two. So we had a, basically a year to turn around this one. We'll have a little bit more time this time. Um but uh, yeah, we're we're planning it right now as we speak. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. I mean, it's always difficult when you've got this second film. It's the yeah, the middle chapter, can be, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Though you know, in the original Star Wars films, it was my favorite of the three films. But you know, I mean, like it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. But it it is, of course, you don't want to leave the audience feeling like you know you stopped mid sentence yeah, and the you story. Just, yeah, yeah. And that's a so real challenge. Be, that's a real challenge. Just the middle chapter in general, you know. But. Yeah, we definitely we kind of do the Empire Strikes Back thing in our movie and uh, and leave things in a, a pretty grim place that you are anxious to see what's going to happen next. So, you know, hopefully people will be patient enough with us and uh, and see it through to the end. Though luckily Thomas never had his hand cut off. That's um, right. Next time. <laughs> next time. Well, it's been so Spoiler. much fun talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so much fun talking to you yeah, and thanks, uh, yeah congratulations on the film because it's just a cracker i, I, yeah, I really thanks, liked dude. it and i i yeah, loved a, how the fun uh, ride. how it spread out yeah it's, it was nice to see you with a different palette as i say even though it's obviously the same same yeah. continuation yeah it's fun man i appreciate it Are you gonna do a romantic comedy after this yeah actually that is next <laughs> now i want to do something that you know is just small and 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 character based and you know that that would be fun to do for sure Okay. Well, until then, uh, enjoy it. And, Plenty uh, of VFX soon. shots, though. You know, that's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. And it was nice to hear Wes give props to Weta's Paint and Roto team, especially as Wes taught a Paint and Roto class for us over at our sister site, FXPHD, a few years back. So he knows what he's talking about and, and can uh, appreciate a good, complex uh, cleanup and uh, Roto work. So enjoyed that interview very much. Over the years, people have asked us how they could help support FX Guide, noticing that we don't do a lot of heavy banner advertising. And we created the FX Insider Program. It's our membership program that offers insiders exclusive access to content and expanded articles. It's a way for people who care about what we do here at FX Guide to help us to continue and grow. Details are at the fxguide.com site. Click the FX Insider tab. This has been the FX Podcast. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we also produce other audio podcasts. Check out the VFX show, which we use visual effects in current releases, as well as covering classic films. And the RC podcast covers digital cinematography. 
Also check out FX Guide TV, our high-definition video podcast. You can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. Also, as I mentioned earlier, check out our sister site, FXPHD, that offers extensive online visual effects training. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.